0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: Welcome to the Vine Guy, the WTOP news podcast. I'm Scott Greenberg, also known as the Vine Guy. In this podcast, we'll delve into the world of wine with winemakers, wine producers, wine professionals, and wine lovers. We'll even sample a few wines and share which ones we think are worth your while. little bit about me, I'm just an enthusiastic wine consumer, has been lucky enough to write a syndicated wine column for several years, participate as a wine judge, and for the last 10 years, the host of the weekly Wine of the Week segment on WTOP Radio in Washington, D.C. In this week's episode, I chat with famous wine importer and winery co-owner, John Terlato. He and his brother co-owned Terlato Wine Group and Terlato Wines, one of the world's leading luxury wine companies based in Lake Bluff, Illinois. We talk about what it takes to own a winery, why you actually may want to give Pinot Grigio a try, and what makes a great wine of the world. We'll also sample some of the wines that made me giggle and should be on your high-value purchase list. So, savor this conversation with John Terlato. The Tolato name's really been synonymous with the wine industry for at least as long as I can remember. How did your family get involved in the industry? So,
0: uh, humble beginnings, in fact. Both of my grandfathers, maternal and paternal, were retailers in Chicago many years ago, after Prohibition, of course. And um, they were retailers in Chicago. My grandfather, Paterno, started as a retailer first, and then my grandfather, Terlato, followed afterwards. And in this context, back in the 50s in Chicago, when most wines that were being sold were Cherry Port and Muscatel for $0.39 a gallon. My grandfather, Terlato, uh, had some of the great wines of the world in his retail store, the most expensive of which was $4.98, which was Chateau Petrus. And so this is the context. I know it's crazy, right? But if you think about it at the time, you could purchase uh, probably the best car, maybe a Cadillac at the time. American car for $600, right? So relatively speaking, everything's kind of kept
1: pace. So, so paying $5 for a bottle of, of French wine was probably it, was a, it expensive. W- it was a
0: luxury purchase, okay. for sure. And so it's in this context that my father joins his father in his retail store and is exposed to the great wines of the world. Uh, they also had an extraordinary beer selection. I remember being in the store as a, a young boy uh, in the in the 60s. And this is where my father developed a love for wine. This is where he developed this passion. He also developed a a dream at that moment that maybe someday, if he were fortunate enough, that he would be able to make wines that might uh, stand shoulder to shoulder with some of these amazing wines that he was selling to his customers. And then we migrated from retail to wholesale and then from wholesale to importing in 1960. And then from importing to exporting and then eventually to winery ownership in 1996, completing the loop. And, and this is really how we entered the business, which, which was a fascinating uh, ride along the way. And my brother and I were um, spectators as my father developed all of these friendships with the people who were
1: forming the, the U.S. wine business at the time. So speaking of your father, he's also known as the father of Pinot Grigio and he's widely credited for introducing the varietal to the American market and you know now you're producing your own Pinot Grigio brand from freely Italy uh, you know that's that's actually pretty cool to be known for that you know the the father of Pinot Grigio tell me a little bit about that so that was
0: groundbreaking at the time it was not a, a varietal back in the early 70s mid 70s Pinot Grigio was not a varietal that was uh, visible in in the us i know it sounds crazy because it's so visible and so ubiquitous today but at the time when when we launched uh the category when my father launched the category there wasn't a lot of it around and we were you know very successful in the category for for many years and then when the moment came where we had uh, the opportunity to create and produce v 2.0 in in terms of pinot grigio um we took a a different a little bit of a different tact making wines that were 100% 100% estate-grown uh, in a green bottle to protect the quality of the wine, uh, more f- full-bodied and and flavorful with great mid, mid-palate weight and length because we felt that these specific vineyards in Friuli were capable of delivering wines at that level of quality and, and depth and intensity. And so it's really all about the vineyards. And if you have a vineyard that can produce wines like that, you almost have an obligation Absolutely. to go along that path, and that's what we're doing with our Pinot Grigio, and we're very fortunate, just very lucky, uh, that the consumer, when tasting the wines, has said, "You know, this is really pretty delicious." Uh, thank you, sir. May I have another, so to speak?
1: Uh, <laughs> you know, I love Pinot Grigio. You know, hot day, you know, in a hammock or with seafood. It just Pinot Grigio is one of those uh, wines that it doesn't doesn't get as much attention as it should. I think. Uh, sometimes I think you know people just think of it as an end cap and a bargain bin, but it's not. I think Pinot Grigio has such oh, extraordinary potential. It really does, and it, I just uh, really it, enjoy
0: it. In its truest format, as a reflection of a great vineyard, Pinot Grigio can be absolutely
1: sublime. I completely agree. Switching gears for just a second, you had just mentioned about you and your brother. You know, growing up. now. by the way, if if I was growing up. And my dad had a beer case. <laughs> Just saying, <laughs> I can only imagine. Wine was our focal point. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, so you would mention you and your brother. I, uh, you're now in your third generation. Uh, fourth, if you fourth with my brother's children now in the business. Fantastic. What, what is your role and what is your brother's role in Terlato today?
0: Um, Bill, Bill is the CEO. And so he has the harder job as far as I'm concerned. I'm there to support him and support the family. You know, our goal is around continuity and there's a lot, there's a lot to do. And he has a full plate and uh, I keep my plate full as well. My job is to support Bill and support the family and make sure that we're, doing the things that we need to do to create continuity, move it into the next generation healthier than how we found it, so to speak, which is a tall order because my dad handed it over to us in pretty good shape. Uh, But Bill's fantastic. Uh, He and I are very close. And um, I seem to be focused on, I happen to like Burgundy, so I'm focused on our Burgundy portfolio. I happen to enjoy farming and the winemaking piece, so I'm, I'm, I'm focused on things that happen in the vineyards probably pretty good. I do, Bill does the hard work and I'll do the all other, whatever it is that needs to be done. I'm happy to step in and, and help in any way that I can. So
1: you've got a passion for Burgundy. Uh, That doesn't sound like such a tough gig to me. (laughs) There, uh, uh, it's not actually, I'm, I'm, I'm never,
0: ever going to complain about, about trips to Burgundy because they're great fun and they're learning experiences. Really what brought me to Burgundy was our purchase our family's purchase of Sanford in Santa Barbara which is focused on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir which and are wonderful wines by the way. Thank you so much. We're 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 moving in the right direction for sure and we're very happy with where we are again it's really all about the vineyard we own it we manage a farm of an extraordinary vineyard so uh that's been incredibly helpful but when we purchased Sanford it seemed to me that maybe I won't say the best place, but certainly a good place to learn about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir might have been a place where they've been farming and making wine uh, for 900 years in that format. And certainly they've learned a lot uh, through the years. And so I started trips to Burgundy to learn about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir farming and winemaking and absolutely fell in love with the place, the people, the food, the wines, of course, but really focused around the people, the people from our just truly extraordinarily extraordinary human beings, at least the ones that I've met and befriended. And so I do spend some time in Burgundy. We do have um, 17 domains from Burgundy in our portfolio that we import, which is uh, just fascinating and fun and interesting to share those wines with
1: with consumers. So we're very lucky. That's all I can say. I, I am curious. Just Could you spend just a minute or two and tell me what experiences in Burgundy have rubbed off on... Sanford and Benedict? Yeah, that's a great question. So if
0: you would have asked me 10 years ago to ascribe a value to vineyard versus winemaking as it relates to the product that ends up in the bottle, I probably would have said 80-20 vineyard to winemaking. The experiences that I've had in Burgundy have caused me to come to the belief or the perspective, and I could be wrong, it's just my perspective, that it's really more like 95-5. Wow. And the great winemakers of the world truly understand that the vineyard is everything. If you're making great wines and you have access to own farming uh, or have grapes from one of the extraordinary vineyards of the world, the vineyard's everything. It comes first, it's in front of everything. And that requires a great amount of confidence and humility and restraint. To put the vineyard in front, and this is probably what I've learned the most from from the, our Burgundian friends is the vineyards are everything. They get passed from one generation to another. People come and go, but the vineyard is the focal point. That's true north. And so, again, if you if you farm and are shepherding one of the great vineyards of the world, it almost seems as if there's a responsibility to highlight the vineyard, to highlight the place. Right, like a stewardship. Indeed. And in fact, I, I view you know my brother and I, we ha- our role is to is to hand a, a vineyard over to the next
1: generation, maybe in better condition than we found it. That's that's pretty noble, and I think that's remarkable. One of the other remarkable things is I understand that you have some thoughts about what makes a great wine great, and in particular, what makes some of the great wines of the world great. Could you share those with me?
0: I would be happy to, um, and then remind me to chat with you about some of the early experiences in life that maybe helped form some of these opinions, which had to do with my father and his friends and the people he was uh, consorting with so to speak, in, in the early days. Um, but you know as I think about the families that, that we've been fortunate enough to represent through the course of the years, um, it, it was a provocation for me. I want to try and understand what, what makes uh, what makes for the great wines of the world and I've, I've come up with a theory, so to speak around, The common threads between and amongst the great wines of the world. Do tell. I will. So I believe there are five, and I'm open to challenge. So first, I think uh, if you think about the great wines of the world, there's a family involved, generally speaking. I know there are exceptions. There's exceptions in all of life, but there's a family involved because families have this amazing way of establishing a a strategy and a vision, a long-term view, and then carrying that forward through generations. And so the the, the the vision for the place is is founded by and from a family, uh, so it's very clear. Number two, um, there's a, a vineyard involved. There is a specific identifiable place that's associated with the great wines of the world. Uh, I, I I'm sure that there may be wines out there, great and important wines of the world that, that may be virtual, but I n- none come to mind. At least I'd have to think about it. So there's a very there's a vineyard involved. Number three, the family has a crystal clear vision of the types of wines that they can produce. And that vision is entirely predicated on what the vineyard has to offer. It's not good wine chemistry and science. It's actually, we have this vineyard. What can this vineyard offer? And then how do we highlight this place through very, very careful farming and winemaking, non-interventionists, put as few thumbprints on it as is humanly possible, and let the place show for itself? Number four. There is a talented, if not brilliant winemaker involved who possesses the skills and the heart to make extraordinary wines. And that person, their vision is aligned with the family. They believe that the vineyard comes first. They believe if it's an extraordinary place, it should be highlighted. And, and I refer to, you know the, the alchemy of that as you know, the great winemakers of the world, um, they truly have greatness in their heart. They don't come to work thinking, oh, I think I'm going to make a great wine this year. They think about,
1: I'm going to make an extraordinary wine that stops people in their track. Quick question on number four. Do you Are you aware of any wine, great winemaker that is actually a member of the family? All, uh, many. Many are. Many. Right. Uh, hundreds. It, it, it,
0: I, was, I was going to say in many instances that great, talented, passionate winemaker is a family member. Okay. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Burgundies. Are, I could think of hundreds of examples. So yes,
1: maybe one one person in the same, so to speak. Fantastic. So it might be actually the exception where the winemaker might not be. It's possible, part of the but that's but right. You probably.
0: But there is a a winemaker, either an owner or not, who 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 has greatness in their heart, wants to make great wine, and a clear vision, indeed. And then number five, um, the wines are, the great and important wines of the world are are beautiful when they're young, but they're also age worthy. They're, they're, you, you, when you taste them when they're young, you say, oh my gosh, this is so pretty, this is so interesting, this is provocative, and, 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 and yet it will only get better, right? They're wines that are distinctive and balanced and precise and complex and have great weight, gravitas, length. These are all flags, elements, markers of the great wines of the world. And I, I feel like the, those are the five common threads that if you really think about the great wines of the world, I'm, I, I feel pretty
1: confident that those five pieces are in place. Well, John, I have to tell you that uh, one of the greatest things about this gig and our relationship is when you agreed to do this podcast and you walked into the studio and you were holding two bottles of wine, probably, as you mentioned, some of the great wines of the world, uh, I think that it's probably time in, in our time together to try these two amazing wines. And by that sound that you hear right now, it's time to do our wine tasting portion of the Vine Guy. So, John, you want to tell us a little bit about the two wines that you brought in, why you brought them, and why you think these wines are so significant? So you've just heard the descriptors. I was thinking about... Wow, the studio smells great
0: now. (laughs) Everybody's (laughs) eyes opened up, and they're all kind of looking at us and peering in the window and want to know what's happening in here. Uh, this is the moment where I'm thrilled that we're not selling toilet paper or kitty litter not that there's anything wrong with that but this the, we get to taste wines and share wines So when I think about the families that we've we've known and represented you know through the years, I, I refer to it as an, as an embarrassment of riches I mean when I think about the people, their personalities who they are, the friendships we've created, the wines that we've helped share with the world uh, it brings a smile to my face because there, there, there are so many there's so much richness in that, and so as I was thinking about bringing in wines for us to taste today, the, the hardest part was narrowing it down to two. It's near impossible,
1: by the way. Well, next time we'll we'll broaden that for you. Yes, we might have we to only do had a, time for two a, a longer <laughs>
0: discussion, right? And so as I was thinking about you know examples of the the great and important wines of the world, and again there are so many examples um, that I can think of. I I did narrow it down to these um, two families just for today, and. Instead of talking about you know their winemaking techniques, etc., what, what I'd like to focus on is is what's in the glass. That that's really the litmus test. Is when you when you heard me say you know a wine that stops you in your tracks, and is a provocation, makes you think, say, how did this happen? Where did this come from? Oh my gosh, this is amazing, uh, and it's only going to get better. And so I put in front of us two wines from two different places using two different, very different. Uh, grapes, very different varietals. But when I taste these wines, every time I taste these wines, I'm struck by all of those markers and flags that I had mentioned around distinctiveness and balance and precision and complexity and length. These wines scream precision and depth and balance and complexity, but not in a obvious way. It's very nuanced. There's layers and layers and layers of Of flavor and complexity and depth. And that's what's interesting for me, is that you meet a family, a winemaker, you see their vineyards, you taste their wines, you connect the dots, and then over the years, you feel comfortable continuing to go back. And it's almost like reading a great book. Every time you read the great, you know, literature of the world, there's another exposure, another learning, another nuance. Another layer. Another layer. I feel wines... like the two we're tasting today, are very similar. Every time I taste them, there's a new layer, there's a new, there's a new learning. So uh, I, I encourage you uh, to taste them to see if you maybe feel uh, the same way about, about these ones. Trust me, you don't need to encourage me. No, okay. Why I, don't I, you tell I, us what's in the first glass? Uh, so the first glass is uh, 100% Sangiovese from a, a very well-known uh, growing region in Italy. Okay. Wow, (laughs) this is stunning. I mean, there's incredible weight to this wine, but it's not overly. It's not overt. You have to go to it. It's just. It's just overt. I don't know any better way to describe. It's not. It's. It's. It's nuanced, but it's not uh, in your face.
1: So I'm. I'm just getting. uh, So first of all, tell us the the producer, the the vintage, the you know the region. So I'm sure the people listening to this are just hearing us talk. Yes, talking we've, we've, about we've drinking held them we've like, held them long. Would long you please tell
0: us what you're drinking. <laughs> so uh this is is Il Pagione Brunello di Montalcino from the Montalcino region. Um the Franceschi family has owned owned this uh vineyard and this estate for for many 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 years and they make, you know, what I consider to be one of the most delicious and interesting and and True representations of of the place and the varietal. This happens to be uh, their reserva. We're drinking the two thousand and twelve, and again, this is. I mean, it's a baby, right? Oh, it I mean, is. We, I mean, we really so should be young. We, we're drinking their wines from the seventies and eighties, which are are just magnificent. They just develop into these wonderful, wonderfully complex wines. But we're we're tasting the twelve. Which gives you this glimpse of, okay, this is really amazing today, and it, it's consumable, so to speak, or approachable today, but it's, and it will only get better over
1: time. I would actually describe this wine as a study in cherry. So when you first put it in your mouth, you get this little pop of, of black cherry, which is just right at the front of the tongue. And then sort of as it goes back, it develops more into like a baked cherry cobbler. And then sort of ends with this black cherry compote. It literally expands in your mouth. Now, there, of course, there's kind of other nuances. I'm picking up a little bit of, of leather in there, which I absolutely adore. Uh, but I, I find this wine fascinating because I, I can't think of any wine that I've had recently where I'm just getting layers and layers and layers of one particular fruit that just keeps expanding.
0: So that's a great observation. Um, it's interesting because... The wines that I'm drawn to possess some element of fruit just naturally you because it comes from fruit, but they're not fruity.
1: No, I would not describe this wine as fruity at right? all. So you
0: have this fruit element. Complicated. Complicated, in fact. <laughs> you have this fruit element, which is wonderful, and then you have all of these counterbalancing measures which come from alcohol and tannic structure and the mid-palate weight, and it's woven together in, in a fabric that's more like like silk than burlap, right? It really is, and and so again, when you know, my my view is, delicious does not require an explanation, right? Profound. I'm going to actually stitch that in a pillow. So, <laughs> it, when you taste something that's delicious, nobody needs to tell you that it's delicious. Nobody needs to guide you towards delicious. You put it in your mouth, and it's amazing and delicious, and you just know. It's it. intuitive. It's intuitive, right? I call right. that the spectrum of taste. In fact, it allowed us to make our way out of the, ca- the cave alive. Because if you think about the spectrum of taste on the right-hand side, which is the amazing cheeseburger or incredible bottle of wine, at the other end of the spectrum is gasoline and bleach. And if you put those in your mouth, you know that it's going to kill you, and so you spit it out. And on the other end of the spectrum, you put it in your mouth and say, oh, my gosh, this is one of the most amazing versions of a cheeseburger or a glass of wine I've ever tasted, and so I'm going to return to this. This is this range of flavor. Fortunately for us, our wines are on the right end of the spectrum with these delicious uh, examples. Absolutely. Uh, So that's the first wine. Next wine. From a very different
1: place, a very different geography, and a completely different varietal. And ladies and gentlemen, if you could see my face right now, (laughs) it's like Christmas came early. And by the way, we could have put dozens of wines on the
0: table in front of us that would be evidence of all these common threads that run between and amongst. You're invited back. Thank you. That was my (laughs) hook, right? I know I'm coming back now. Uh, And it could be from Burgundy, it could be from Spain, it could be from Germany, it could be from Australia or South Africa or California. There are all these wonderful wine-growing regions that possess extraordinary vineyards and then winemaking families and or winemakers who are expressing the place in, in the way that we're tasting right now, right? Mm. So second mm-hmm. um, glass, I'm gonna go back to it because I enjoy it. Um,
1: John, as you know, I normally spit. Yes. I'm. <laughs> You're spitting inwards this time, I'm, I'm, right? I'm gonna tell you, I'm, I'm swallowing. This is a remarkable wine.
0: So the second, so that's the idea. I don't
1: need to tell you that. Yeah.
0: You happen to be very knowledgeable. You, you, you come to that conclusion based on, on knowledge and experience. But the, the the everyday wine consumer would, would likely come to that same conclusion when they put these wines in their mouth. Absolutely.
1: If you put this in front of somebody, they're going to know in, instinctively it's a great wine. Knowledgeable or new right. to the category. Completely right? agree. And what I love about these wines, as I, you've heard me say before,
0: they're provocative. They actually provoke curiosity and a desire to learn and m- maybe not going down the rabbit hole, so to speak, but... It, it takes people to a place where they say, I'd really like to know more about this. I'd like to know more about the place. I'd like to know more about the family. I'd like to know more about this wine. And for me, that's the joy of... I would just
1: like more of this wine.
0: <laughs> it, that, that could. I'm happy with that as a starting point. I'm also happy if they decide that they want to learn more about the place or the or the varietal or the vineyard. So I think wines like the ones we're tasting today are, in fact, provocative. No, wine number two is 100% Nebbiolo. Again, a renowned winemaking family from the, you tell me when you want me to uncover the family. I'm happy to.
1: Why don't don't you tease us a little bit more and then rip the Band-Aid off? A 100% Nebbiolo uh, from Piedmont, in fact,
0: uh, from a family who's made wines there for many years. And again, so many similarities just in terms of flavor, weight, depth, precision, complexity, a connectedness to the place. These wines are unique because of their connectedness to a very specific place. And the family has decided or is committed to
1: highlighting the vineyards and the place. And probably one of the most famous families in Piedmont. Uh, likely. And by the way,
0: wonderful people. Amazing human beings. A joy to be with. I Humble. agree. Humble. I've had the pleasure. Now You know them. Humble, knowledgeable, intelligent, engaging, smiles on their face, you know, smiles in their heart. I, and when I think of the, the, the family, I think about, you know, they have smiles in their heart and they share that with people, uh, both personally and through their wines, right? And so this is uh, Gaia Barbaresco, 2013. Again, 100% Nebbiolo uh, from Piedmont. And another extraordinary example of a wine that that is evocative of the place and, and, and the vision that mm-hmm. the family has mm-hmm. based on the
1: place. John, <laughs> I, I just peed a little. They're so beautiful. is toe-curling good. It's it, the, the, the only word I can think of to describe this wine. I know it's not a great descriptor to people listening. Complex. This just – you put it in your mouth and it just keeps going and going and going and like peeling the layers back yes. of different things going on. Very different from our first wine where the yes. first wine was kind of, I said, a study in cherry. Mm-hmm. I, I can't really even describe, begin to describe how this wine uh, starts and finishes other than it just con- continues to change in the mouth. And, and um, will for hours and, and hours. It will matters. just expand. Now, the one thing I did notice about both of these wines is um, you you serve them just slightly chilled. I wouldn't say they were cold. They're not cold. But there's, they're not room temperature either. And we had a very brief discussion before we started the podcast about your belief of serving wines just slightly chilled. On the cooler slide and i'd I'd love for you to just share those thoughts because i think they're fascinating
0: yeah so i and again this is just my view i could be entirely wrong and i i'm i'm willing to accept that others have maybe differing views but i like to serve uh red wines in, in in my home at cellar temperature which is around 56 degrees so that's my cellar temperature but that doesn't mean that that needs to be somebody else's cellar temperature I enjoy serving wines at that red wines at that temperature because I, I I would like fruit to be visible, noticeable, and as wines move towards room temperature, warmer, I believe that the perception of fruit maybe could become masked by the increased perception of alcohol as wines move towards room temperature. Now, I'm going to check this with a very close friend of mine who understands the chemistry of wine quite deeply, but it's been my belief that as wines move towards towards room temperature, alcohol seems to play a bigger role in what you smell and taste, and that could be just the physiology of taste and our palate and how it works. Uh, but when I serve the wines cooler, i.e. 56 degrees, I seem to sense this Wonderful round fruit component uh, that we work so hard to show when
1: we're crafting wines from a specific vineyard. Well, just in the fifteen minutes that these wines have been open in front of us, I can tell you that they they have evolved, Uh, and that's kind of fun too. So I think even as the wines start to warm up, you start to get different uh, different components that start to come through. Now, whether that's due to aeration. Or due to the warming of the temperature, maybe some uh, you know the volatiles blowing off as you said through the alcohol. Um, I, I prefer serving wines slightly chilled because I like to see how they warm up and evolve. Too. Indeed, uh, and I think it's fascinating. If you start at room temperature, they they yeah, may you got be- no
0: place to go. They may go. They may become warmer because as you put your, as someone might put their hand around the bowl of a wine glass. Right. Now you start to warm it up beyond room temperature. Right. So I'd let, I prefer to start out a little bit cooler if then over time it starts to move towards room temperature. We'll refill the glass with, a, with the wine from the bottle that's still, you know, kind of at 56, 57 degrees. I try and keep them at that temperature
1: through the course of a dinner uh, without becoming too cold. Wait, all I heard was refill. Refill, <laughs> indeed. Uh, as, as in, I'm going to have more of those. But uh, that's all the time we have today, John, and I cannot thank you enough for coming into the the studio today and, and talking with us and sharing your thoughts and giving us a little bit of insight into your family history and and sharing these two magnificent wines with us. So thank you for joining us on The Vine Guy. The, the pleasure was all mine.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I, I hope it was fun for you and, and fun for your listeners. Uh, we always have so many interesting stories about the wine business, and we're always happy to share them, my family, my brother, my father, and I, and our next generation. So thank you very much for having Would me. you
1: stop back in next time you're in town?
0: I'd be thrilled. Fantastic. I'd be thrilled.
1: Thanks so much for listening to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Again, those wines we tasted were the 2013 Gaia Barbaresco and the 2012 Paganelli Brunello de Montalcino Reserva. You can also find them listed on the episode's description of the podcast one page. Follow me on Twitter at The Vine Guy, and be sure to catch my Wine of the Week segments on Fridays on WTOP and WTOP.com. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. Music for this episode is Wishful Thinking by Dan Lebowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Thanks for listening, and until next time, drink well.